have a seat. The structure that is pictured behind me on the wall is Yad Vashem. Yad Vashem is the name of Israel's official memorial to the six million Jews who perished in the Holocaust, and it is located in Jerusalem. After the Western Wall, it is the second most visited Israeli tourist site. The name Yad Vashem is taken from the fifth verse of Isaiah 56 that you heard read for you this morning by Debbie and um, by Jordan. Yeah. The fifth verse says this. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. So the idea of the memorial is that these victims who have no one to carry on their name after death, that they would have a national depository where their names are kept. So that's Yad Vashem. The original Isaiah passage refers in that fifth verse to eunuchs. Eunuchs who, while they could not have children, will have in God's house a name. The verse says that is better than sons and daughters. So eunuchs in the ancient world typically found gainful employment in palaces because they could be trusted with the queen, right? And they could be trusted with the the harem. As Fred Craddock once said in a sermon on this passage, they weren't late for work because they were driving the carpool. Eunuchs had no wife, no children, nothing to distract. But there is this interesting note by the historian Josephus that said this, There is a nasty thing about King Herod. The nasty thing about King Herod is that he had three eunuchs in his palace. So while there were really many bad things about King Herod, many nasty things about King Herod, why is it that Josephus would be particularly offended by three eunuchs? It seems to me to be the least of Herod's offenses. Well, here's why. Here's why Herod's a Jew. Herod's a Jew, and the Torah says in Deuteronomy 23 that no eunuch may enter the assembly of the Lord. No eunuch may enter the assembly of the Lord, period. That's it. It's very clear. They're not welcome. A Jewish king, then, shouldn't have them in his palace. But there are these words from the prophet Isaiah that you heard earlier, and they are an interesting twist. These words that we read in the book of Isaiah were recorded as the Jews were returning from Babylon, from the Babylonian exile, and they were hoping to restore Jerusalem in ways that were faithful. And so these words from Isaiah are really quite gutsy. They're gutsy words that are uh, given the particular historical context. But I guess I suppose that's the way of a prophet, to be gutsy. 
they're gutsy because common logic would remind the Israelites that they're in danger as they return to Jerusalem. They're in danger of being polluted. They're in danger of being polluted by the ways of the pagans that they're coming in contact with. But Isaiah says in verses 4 and 5, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give them a house, and within my walls a monument, and a name that is better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Reading the New Testament, In the light of these gutsy words by the prophet Isaiah, I believe is productive. So I want to jump from Isaiah into the New Testament and do a little reflecting on some passages in the New Testament through this lens of Isaiah. In the New Testament book of Acts, in chapter 8, there is an angel who directs Philip, the disciple, to get up. From where he is and to go south of Jerusalem. Philip does this and on the road he meets an Ethiopian eunuch. A court official, the scripture says, in, uh, the, at the palace for the queen Candace. This eunuch had come to Jerusalem to worship and he was returning home in his chariot. And when Philip approaches him, he hears that the man is reading scripture. He hears that the man is reading scripture from the prophet Isaiah. Of all the places in the Bible, that's where he's reading, from the prophet Isaiah, the gutsy prophet. As the two of them talk about the scripture and the good news of Jesus the Christ, they come to some water. And the man asks to be baptized. So reading that story in the light of Isaiah, I see that the prophecy is fulfilled there. Because in Christian baptism, our names are made very clear. The Holy Spirit proclaims over each one of us in baptism, This is my child, whom I love. And that is an everlasting name for each one of us. So it becomes an everlasting name for this eunuch that Philip has encountered. Funny thing about this guy, he's a foreigner. The text says he's a foreigner from Ethiopia. So there was a place that was called Ethiopia in the first century, but it wasn't where the country is today in Africa. Um, But Acts is probably not referring to a place, a specific geographical place. Instead, Ethiopia in many instances in early literature was just a symbolic name and it meant to go as far as you can go. It meant the jumping off place or go as far as you can go. And then a little bit further, it was like saying Timbuktu. That was Ethiopia. So to go to Ethiopia meant to go to the ends of the earth. Isaiah says in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 56, The foreigners who keep my Sabbath, these I will bring to my holy mountain for my house shall be a house of prayer for all people. So you baptize someone from Ethiopia in the first century, that somebody is from the edge of the earth. 
you couldn't find someone edgier to baptize. That is a symbol of all people in the book of Acts. Maybe you've heard that phrase before, my house shall be a house of prayer for all people. Remember when Jesus said it? Remember in the New Testament when Jesus said that? He is in the Jerusalem temple, the holy mountain, and he overturns tables, the tables of the money changers. And he quotes Isaiah as he's overturning the tables, my house shall be a house of prayer for all people. I sometimes visit a silent retreat center that's just a few hours away from here in South Texas. Last time I was there, there was another guy who was there who was really having a hard time with the silence. He commented on the food out loud when we were sitting in silence at the dinner table. His cell phone buzzed when we were sitting in silence in the chapel, and I could hear him texting. You know, That kind of stuff gets all over me because I'm a rule follower. And so I'm sure that he didn't miss my glare over the course of the weekend. I shot him a glare a few times. And that lens is the lens that we usually put over the Jerusalem temple story where Jesus overturns the table. That's the lens that we usually put over it. It looks like this is serious, people. You need to worship You need to get things in order and just worship. Get the junk out of this space and let's pray. But here's the thing. It's not a very good lens. (laughs) It's not a good lens for me, my judgmental rule follower lens. You can ask my family. Uh, I usually don't get revelation when I'm in that space. And neither do they. So a better lens to put over that story that you can find in Mark, but you can also find in Matthew and Luke, is this lens of Isaiah 56. Most Bible teachers will point out that Jesus is overturning tables, probably because these tables are set up in the outer court of the temple. And the outer court of the temple is the space for Gentiles. It's the only place where foreigners could go. It's the only place for Gentiles in the temple. And the Jews are filling up that space with the sacrificial business for themselves, for one another, for the Jews. So Jesus not only clears out the space and overturns the tables, but he teaches them None of the three Gospels where this story is recorded says that Jesus is angry. I usually think that Jesus is angry when I picture this in my mind. It says that he drives the money changers out of the table, but it, out of the temple, but it doesn't say that he's angry. Instead, all three of those Gospels say that as he drives them out of the temple, he's teaching them. The word is he taught them. The words are he taught them. Now, most gospel movies just show him ranting as he's driving them out of the temple. But the scripture actually says he's teaching them. And he teaches them using Isaiah 56. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. He's teaching them, remembering the words of that gutsy prophet, Isaiah 
And Jesus' actions and teaching in the days before his death clear the space in the temple. So that in Acts, a guy who's from the very ends of the earth, a guy who's from the jumping off place, a marked outsider, has a place to worship when he travels to Jerusalem. He can go there to the holy mountain and encounter Philip on his way out of town as he's leaving Jerusalem. Of all the people that I believe probably smile on this scene from heaven, I think King Solomon's smile might be the brightest. King Solomon oversaw the construction of the Jerusalem temple, and when it was completed, In a prayer of dedication, Solomon included words of blessing for the foreigner. He prayed that when the foreigner comes to the temple to pray, he prayed, Lord, answer their prayer. Because when you answer the prayers for everyone, Solomon said in 1 Kings, all the earth will know that this space, that this place is yours. It's as if he was saying, Lord, that's your trademark. That's what you do. You want all the people on this earth to be blessed. You know, it's a part of the call that the Lord has for Abram in the 12th chapter of Genesis. He says, I will make you into a great nation and all the people of earth will be blessed through you. So three times in the first eight verses of Isaiah 56 are the words, keeps my Sabbath. And these words refer to the eunuch who keeps my Sabbath, the foreigner who keeps my Sabbath, and to you, to you and to me, the one who keeps my Sabbath, the prophet prophet says, We keep the Sabbath for many reasons. We keep the Sabbath to replenish. We keep the Sabbath to remember that God loves freedom and slaves don't get a Sabbath. So when we keep the Sabbath, we are saying we are not slaves. And we keep the Sabbath to recognize that we are about more than what we produce. That There's more to defining us. There's more to our identity than what we can do. But most of all, I believe we keep the Sabbath. We rest so that we can reside in a place of belonging. Theologian Ellen Davis says that God's people know that the promise and the hope of rest meant a security of place. It's a place where you belong, is what rest, the concept of rest is about. So when the promised land is a hope for the people who are journeying, they believe in that hope that there will be a place where they can rest. It's a land where they belong. When, Ruth, when Naomi blesses her daughters-in-laws for a family where they will rest, she is blessing them not so that they will marry a rich man and be able to put their feet up and eat chocolate, but instead she is blessing them for homes, 
homes that they will go to where they belong. Dr. Oliver Sacks was the subject of the movie Awakenings years back. Robin Williams was the star of that movie. You might remember it. Dr. Oliver Sacks wrote a series of essays in the last few months of his life. And the very last essay that he wrote, he titled Sabbath. He called it Sabbath. He was raised in an Orthodox Jewish household. Both of his parents were physicians. And the family celebrated Shabbat each week. Um, They would fill that day with worship, and they would fill it with visits from friends and from extended family. But his parents would not take the phone off the hook in their home because they were both physicians in case they were needed to save a life. So remember last week when we were talking about Jesus uh, in anger, asking the Pharisees, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save life or to kill? And the right answer, the easy answer, was it's right to do good. It's right to save life. And so Dr. Sack's parents practiced the Sabbath that way. They were available in case they were needed to save a life. As a young man, Sacks found himself cut off from his family and his faith. And he writes in the essay that the absence of deep connection in his life led him to a near suicidal addiction to amphetamines. He says in the essay that it was his work in the Bronx telling the stories of the chronically ill that began to bring him healing. He also reconnected with a cousin, a man named Robert John, who in 2005 won the Nobel Prize for his work in economics. And he told his cousin Oliver that had that award required that he travel to Stockholm on a Saturday, he would have just simply refused the prize because the Sabbath was so important to him. He wrote to his cousin, the observance of the Sabbath is extremely beautiful. It is about improving one's own quality of life. In the year 2014, Sachs traveled to Jerusalem to a family celebration, a family birthday party, and a part of that family celebration included the peace of the Sabbath. The very last paragraph of Sack's last essay published in 2015 and put in the New York Times just days before he died, said this. And now, weak and short of breath, my once firm muscles melted away by cancer, I find my thoughts increasingly on what is meant by living a good and worthwhile life. Achieving a sense of peace within oneself. I find my thoughts drifting to Sabbath, to the day of rest, the seventh day of the week, perhaps the seventh day of one's life as well. When one can feel that one's work is done and may in good conscience rest. I believe that Sabbath always allows us to experience the truth 
that the gutsy prophet Isaiah promises, the truth that we belong, the truth that we have an everlasting name, that we have an everlasting place, and that we are worthy of rest. Would you pray with me? Eternal God, we long for the peace of Sabbath. Would you stir up understanding in our lives that we might know the truth about rest and belonging? We bless you this day as you long to bless all the people of earth. May our lives reveal more than right belief and productivity. Allow our day-to-day existence to extend compassion, both to people we come in contact with and to people who are isolated and in need of contact. We make a place for rest as you, Lord, make a place for us. We make a place of rest as you make a place for us. Amen.